This is the Josh Hammer Show. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews. Does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment. This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. This was one of the most frustrating congressional hearings I've watched in my entire life. This was last Tuesday. You had the president of Harvard University, Claudine Gay, the president right there of the University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill, and their colleague from MIT testify before the U.S. House. That was an excellent line of questioning from Congresswoman Elise Stefanik from upstate New York there. Folks, I'm not sure that I have words to describe this testimony. Again, this is Harvard, UPenn, and MIT. These are three of the most quote-unquote prestigious universities in the country. Right there at UPenn, where Liz McGill, God help us, is the president. A total and complete leftist nutjob who did a number out in Palo Alto back when she was dean of Stanford Law School before getting a promotion to be full-on president of the University of Pennsylvania. At Penn, just for context, there have been students since October 7th chanting around campus, not just for a ceasefire, not just for a so-called two-state solution, calling for intifada, calling to gas the Jews. It's happening all over. At Cornell University, there was a recent clip of students disrupting the library, marching through the library. Students are trying to study. They're studying for final exams. Don't these miscreants have anything better to do with their time? Like, seriously. Like, you disgusting, privileged, snot-nosed brats. Your parents are paying for an Ivy League education. And instead of studying for finals, you're marching around campus, disrupting students in the library, calling to genocide the Jews? What in God's name is wrong with you? Where did life take you down this direction? Imagine taking us back to that congressional hearing. Imagine if a congressman or a senator were to ask the president of Harvard, Penn, and MIT, if calling for the genocide of gay Americans, if calling for the genocide of black Americans would get you sanctioned, suspended, and or expelled. Do you think in that 
particular instance, these university presidents would appeal to needing more quote unquote context. Are you out of your mind? If there's a neo-Nazi student running around calling to gas the Jews, apparently you need context. We all know what would happen if a racist went around calling for Jim Crow or slavery all over again. That person would correctly, would correctly get suspended, if not outright expelled. Hopefully the latter, because that's, that speech has no business being anywhere near college campuses these days. Folks, if you want to know why the United States of America in the year 2023 heading into 2024 is not in a particularly great place, look no further than the testimonies of Claudine Gay, Liz McGill, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT. These are supposed to be some of our leading institutions tasked in theory with sculpting the next generation of American, indeed, global luminaries across all the fields that matter, the humanities, the sciences, the arts, business, politics, law, you name it. And here they are, smirking, by the way, Claudine Gay and Liz McGill, as they're getting berated properly by Congresswoman Stefanik and others on the committee, both Republican and Democratic alike, by the way. Many Democratic congressmen were not particularly pleased with these answers and their performances either. But sitting there, President Gay of Harvard, President McGill of UPenn, they are smirking the whole time. This is a game to them. This is all fun to them. You know what's not a game? What's not a game is what Jewish students at these institutions have been facing since October 7th. What's not a game is what happened at Cooper Union in New York City, a city with one of the largest Jewish populations in the world, another purportedly prestigious university, Cooper Union. This was a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so. The Jewish students were locked in the library as pro-Palestinian protesters, I would really call them jihadist sympathizers, if not outright jihadists, standing on the outside of the library, banging intifada, intifada, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. You see this video of the Jews in the library literally fearing What's going to happen? Are they going to get in? Are they going to harm us? The way that particular instance ended was the NYPD ended up having to evacuate the Jewish students out via underground tunnel. Yes, in the year 2023, there are Jews being brought to safety from the police force via underground tunnel to escape jihadist sympathizing students calling further genocide. That is literally what is happening. At Cornell University, another university with a historically huge Jewish population, the anti-Jewish threats there recently were so intense, so extreme, that observant Jewish students were told they should not even eat at the kosher dining hall option, lest they be seen wearing a kippah eating kosher food. 
And here are these smirking presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT saying that this is not sanctionable speech. We know where they are coming from, unfortunately. We know also where the absolute idiot from Washington State, the chairwoman of the Progressive Congressional Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, we know where she is coming from in this galling recent interview she had with Dana Bash on CNN, where she refused to unequivocally condemn the mass rape and sexual violence committed against Israeli women on October 7, 2023. She also demanded that there be more context and that we both sides this thing. Dana Bash, to her credit, and I don't give CNN credit particularly often, but to her credit, she pushed back and correctly noted in that interview that the IDF is not systemically raping Palestinian Arab women. Jayapal tried to wordsmith her way out of that one. Look, whether it is Congresswoman Jayapal, whether it is President Gay or McGill of Harvard and Penn, they are coming from the same place, which is really this simple. Anti-Semitism, Jew hatred is the world's oldest form of bigotry and it is currently, again, the most fashionable form of bigotry. It is not merely politically correct in the warped, depraved minds of our political foes. It is righteous. It is righteous according to the tenets of the reigning orthodoxy, of wokeism, of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because under DEI, we know that there are two types of people. There are the oppressors and there are the oppressed. I don't understand fully to this day how the most oppressed people, persecuted people of all time, the Jews, became an oppressor class in the DEI hierarchical construct. But that is how they view us. Accordingly, they do not think that we should be protected from open, naked calls for our mass slaughter, for our genocide, including on the university campuses of Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. Folks, if your response to hearing this congressional testimony is not to forswear and to boycott sending your children, sending a single penny of your dollars to these godforsaken institutions, I don't know what else it would take to wake you up. Not just Jews, but defenders of Western civilization simply have to, have to renounce institutions like this. Never, ever send your children to Harvard, UPenn, or MIT after that congressional testimony. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're joined by Adam Andrzejewski. He's the founder and CEO of Open the Books, which you perhaps have not heard of, but you really should have heard of them. They do fantastic work when it comes to fiscal transparency, tracking every single penny of taxpayer dollar. So, Adam, thanks much for joining the show today. Why don't we start off just by kind of informing the audience for those who might not be aware of Open the Books. I've been a fan of your organization for many years now. I think they do indispensable work. What what do you guys do? Why don't you just briefly explain it? Well, we believe transparency revolutionizes United States public policy and politics. So, Josh, to that end, last year we filed 55,000 Freedom of Information Act requests. It was the most in American history. Over the course of the last five years, we've captured nearly every dime taxed and spent at every level of government across the entire country. I'm talking federal, state, and local spending. In five years, we've filed 300,000 FOIAs. All of it's displayed for free on our website at openthebooks.com. And we've, we just debuted this outstanding search tool. It's a little chat bot with three questions. You can basically get your answer to how your tax dollars were spent at every level. So you heard it right there, and you, you, you've been doing a lot of media hits in general, but especially since the tragedy in Israel on October 7th. That's why I wanted to bring you on, Adam. I, I think the American taxpayer is only starting to realize the extent to which U.S. tax dollars, I mean, let's hold aside the European Union, that's a whole separate can of worms, but just the but just U.S. tax dollars have gone to subsidize those who sought to wantonly slaughter the Jews of Israel on, on October 7th. I don't know how else to say it. It's a really sober realization. We've talked on this show in the past about funding of the Iranian regime, the Biden administration trying to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. You, you guys have done a lot of work exposing the depths of the depravity of the U.S. Leviathan when it comes to subsidizing the Iranian regime, the Palestinian Authority, and yes, dare I say, Hamas itself. So why don't you just talk about some of the work that you guys have been doing on this front over the past couple of months? So the operating question after October 7th was just how much in terms of U.S. taxpayer money was in play in Gaza and the West Bank, Palestinian aid the Middle East writ large, looking the other way on policy aid to Iran, the world's largest state sponsor, and then matriculated into the United States domestically here, how much US, U.S. taxpayer aid was into the elite wealthy institutions that look like they've incubated discrimination, bigotry, and anti-Semitism. And so at OpenTheBooks.com, we dove into those four issues. So if we start with Palestinian aid, in August of 2018, the Trump administration froze that aid for the first time in the 71-year history of Palestinian aid. And in April of 2021, Biden restarted Palestinian aid. In the first three years of his administration, we were the ones that quantified the $1 billion of U.S.-Palestinian aid flow during the Biden administration into the, into the U.N. special fund uh, on, that, on that basis. And so uh, we were, you know, we were proud to uh, find that number, showcase that number, and um, give context to it. 
So how much money has the Biden administration actually given to the Palestinian authorities? That would be Fatah. That would be Mahmoud Abbas, who's sitting in Ramallah. I mean, because you alluded to the Taylor Force Act, which was a piece of legislation that the Trump administration signed. Congress was happy to sign that into law. Trump signed it. And the Taylor Force Act, as you mentioned, was cutting off all U.S. aid to the Palestinian Authority, at least unless and until they forswear their so-called pay-for-slay program, which for those who may not be aware, is this just horrific, galling, I mean, inhumane would be an understatement of the century, program whereby the PA literally subsidizes what they refer to as martyrs, meaning those who maim and or kill Israelis, by the way, not just Jewish Israelis, Christian Druze, whoever happens to be there who has been killed. But the Biden administration, essentially, without formally repealing the law, Congress did not repeal the law, they have found a way around this. So I think people just now are starting to come to terms with the fact that, you know, the Palestinian Authority, uh, not only have they not condemned the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, they have openly celebrated it in many ways. So do you have a sense as to just how much money we've given to the PA over the past couple of years? Well, the Biden administration has given U.S. foreign aid of $232 million into Gaza and the West Bank. Now, the Palestinian Authority, they're supposed to be our peace partners right. in that area of the world, Josh. You know that. But they've got this policy codified into Palestinian law. And look, I'm from Illinois. It is the Super Bowl of corruption. <laughs> but this uh, murder for hire pay for slave policy, money for mass murder. This takes corruption to a whole nother level. You got the Palestinian Authority who provides the funds for these pensions for the families of the dead terrorists. Uh, You've got the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, who actually distributes the money. There are 500 employees between the organizations that run this fund. It in 2018 on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, the figure of $320 million a year in pensions are paid out every single year. It's 10% of the entire budget of the Palestinian Authority. So they, they provide the funds at the PA. The PLO distributes the money. It's pay for slave, money for mass murder. It's gruesome. And U.S. taxpayer dollars, uh, period, end of story, never should be funding anything that has a policy like this. Yeah. And when it comes to Gaza in particular, because the PA is an atrocious organization, you're right. I mean, the Biden administration wants the PA to come into Gaza after Israel, God willing, does what it has to do to Hamas. They want the PA to come in and rule over Gaza. The, the PA is obviously not a peace partner. Again, I think that would be a remarkable understatement. When it comes to Gaza itself, the U.S. is also complicit in subsidizing Gaza, at least a little more indirectly, because we are major funders now of UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, another horrible U.N. organization that Trump was starting to pull away from. The Biden administration brought us back into UNRWA embeds itself with Hamas infrastructure in Gaza. There are UNRWA teachers that literally teach these Arab children in Gaza, if you slaughter two Jews and three Jews, how many Jews have you slaughtered? That's how these U.N. schools are teaching arithmetic over there. And then, of course, the Biden administration named Qatar a major non-NATO U.S. ally last year. Qatar is the literal number one funder, actually, of what's happening in Gaza. So Gaza itself, the U.S. is certainly at least a little more indirectly complicit in subsidizing as well. Adam, let's talk a little bit about the Iranian regime, because that obviously is the head of the snake in the region. Oh, oh. Go ahead. Sorry. You put some issues on the table with UNRWA, and I'd, I'd like to give some For sure. context to that. Um, even the left-leaning New Republic called UNRWA 
a arm of Hamas. And this was back in 2014 when the Biden administration restarted the aid to UNRWA. uh, Anthony Blinken was asked if the aid would make its way to terrorist organizations or terrorist activity. And he actually said in his press conference on this, no guarantees. You've got the UNRWA fund is so embedded into U.S. appropriations coming out of Congress that in the American Rescue Act plan, which was supposed to be a domestic bailout bill during the COVID era for U.S. institutions, UNRWA actually received $34 million from that domestic bill for their own funding. So they're deeply embedded into congressional appropriations. Yeah, no, thank you for flagging that. Uh, UNRWA is a horrific organization similar to UNESCO, another United Nations outlet that is structurally inherently anti-Semitic. UNESCO is kind of like the cultural world heritage site, and they literally will not even refer to the Temple Mount, which is where the first and second temple in Jerusalem were built. They won't even refer to that as as a Jewish historical site. Rather, they only refer to it as Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was of course, built centuries and centuries, uh, millennia, as the case may be, after the temple. So these UN organizations just stink to high heaven. As many of us have argued for years, they are structurally and inherently anti-Semitic. But speaking of structurally and inherently anti-Semitic, there's no more inherently anti-Semitic government, for lack of a better term, in the world than the malocracy, the Iranian regime that is the funder of essentially all the chaos we're seeing across the region now, whether it is the Houthi rebels that are firing on U.S. ships in the Red Sea, that are firing indiscriminately on U.S. air bases in Syria and Iraq. Iran is obviously an issue where the U.S. taxpayer tragically has been deeply complicit, deeply complicit in subsidizing, at least since the Biden administration came back into office. And started pursuing again this great flirtation with the Iran nuclear deal. Why don't you just talk a little bit about the Iranian piece of the puzzle, Adam? So when it comes to Iran, you know, Trump, again, he put hard sanctions on 80 percent of the Iranian economy and he nearly bankrupted the mullahs. So when when Trump came into office, uh, the mullahs had one hundred and twenty eight billion dollars of cash reserves in the bank. When Trump left office, they had $15 billion in terms of cash reserves. Since then, it's been a bull market for the mullahs in Iran. Their cash reserves are up over 60%. They're up to about $25 billion under the Biden administration. And it's because of policy change. Biden has not reversed the hard sanctions on Iran. They're just looking the other way. They're not enforcing the sanctions. So they've allowed Iran to sell their oil, their cheap oil on the on the market, you know, uh, the thinking is mostly to China and the Biden administration got a twofer. He wants he wanted detente with the mullahs in Iran and with China. China benefits from the cheap oil sales for their for their energy to build their economy. They're happy with the Biden administration and the, the mullahs were happy with the Biden administration because approximately 40 billion dollars has flowed into the coffers of the mullahs from the cheap oil sales. So th- this is an issue that is often, I think, misunderstood or at least understood. Why don't you talk about the sanctions on the oil sales specifically? Because that that is actually how Iran is now subsidizing a lot of the terror across the region. Well, and it may be more than that. It may be, you know, as high as 80 billion. The reports are mixed on that. At OpenTheBooks.com, we chose the lower figure just to be conservative with the estimate. Uh, you also have the $10 billion of look the other way, uh, loosening of sanctions on the uh, electricity sales into Iraq. Incredibly, when we left Iraq, we left 
you know, major portions of the country dependent on Iran for their electricity. So now they've set up a situation where Iran can barter for $10 billion for to get electricity into their country. And then, of course, we're all we're all we all know about that six billion dollars worth of money that started out in of Iranian unfrozen assets that started out in South Korea. That's now in Qatar. Uh, that would be for humanitarian and food aid. But obviously, money is fungible when you have six billion dollars right. in Iran. Well, to feed your your uh, your people, that frees up six billion dollars that could be used for terrorism. So finally, let's talk about the, the universities. You really can't talk about skyrocketing anti-Semitism and the extent of U.S. taxpayer complicity in it without talking about the state of America's universities. So we recently heard congressional testimony from the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT. I, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I mean, I want to pull my hair out watching some some of this testimony and, and their just absolute refusal to unequivocally condemn calls for genocide of the Jewish people, a speech that is sanctionable or unwelcome on America's purportedly most prestigious university campuses. How concerned should the U.S. taxpayer be about direct subsidization of anti-Semitism at America's universities and really, for that matter, frankly, direct subsidization of anti-Western civilization values more generally, frankly? Well, should we, we should be very concerned. I think, you know, after October 7th and seeing what's happened at our elite universities on the campuses and the lack of response and condemnation, you know, regular people across the entire country just wanted to know how much U.S. taxpayer money was at stake in these institutions that they've, you know, harbored or incubated the discrimination, the bigotry and the anti-Semitism, let alone the advocacy against our closest ally in the Middle East, Israel, you know, uh, Public funding and discrimination, those should never be intertwined. Uh, we at OpenTheBooks.com dove into the last five years worth of U.S. taxpayer subsidies, special tax treatment of their endowments and investments, and federal payments on contracts and grants. And Josh, here's what we found. We found that the eight schools of the Ivy League, plus Stanford and Northwestern, over the course of the past five years, uh, had received on federal payments, contracts and grants, $33 billion. That number actually exceeded the amount that they those schools collected from undergraduate student tuition. So these wealthy and elite schools, they're more federal contractor today than they are educator. Then we took a look at the massive growth over the course of the past five years in their endowments. Today, their endowments of those 10 schools collectively are 220 billion dollars. Wow. It's up 65 billion dollars over the course of the past five years, including obviously the pandemic years. So you got about 12 billion dollars worth of capital gain on that that they didn't have to pay tax on. Now, starting in December of 2017, uh, there's a 1.4 percent excessive endowments tax on the gains of those schools. Uh but that pales in comparison to the 23.4% capital gains tax on wealthy Americans. So there's there's a lot in this that regular people and taxpayers should be concerned about. 
Well, there's a lot to be concerned about, unfortunately, when it comes to U.S. subsidization of the American Leviathan more generally. That's why I know, Adam, that I personally am grateful for the work that you do and that Open the Books does. Again, for the listeners who are not familiar, you can go to openthebooks.com to check out all of the great work that Adam Andrzejewski and his organization does. Adam, really appreciate you stopping by to talk with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. One of the foundational divides of our time is between the globalists and the nationalists. Those who believe in the World Economic Forum, those who believe in the jet-setting Davos class, those who believe in the power of the United Nations, the European Union, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, all these transnational bodies and junkets that seek ultimately to erode national sovereignty in the name of global hegemony, ultimately of one world order. Well, you might not have noticed, but all the usual suspects have been congregating since the end of last month. They're actually still there in Dubai, the UAE of all places, for the COP28 summit. Now, you might think COP28, hmm, is this the kind of thing that the local NYPD officer might be taking? No, no, no. I regret to inform you it is not that kind of COP conference. This is about climate change. The United Nations has been doing this for 30 years now. This is the 28th climate change boondoggle. It is in Dubai, as I mentioned, which is itself absolutely hilarious. Now, look, I mean, no disrespect against Dubai, no disrespect against the United Arab Emirates in general. I was there just under a year ago, had a fantastic time. But let me tell you, I was there on New Year's Eve taking in the light show, the epic fireworks coming off of the towering Burj Khalifa skyscraper there on December 31st into the new year. And when I was looking at this massive demonstration of power and electricity there in the scorching hot desert, literally air conditioning and lighting up the desert, the first thing I was thinking of was certainly not green energy. It was certainly not climate change. And if you look at the COP28 summit, for which John Kerry himself, yes, that John Kerry, the failed Democratic presidential nominee, the terror-appeasing pro-Iran former Secretary of State under Barack Obama, he's now moonlighting, lest you forget, as the first ever U.S. special envoy for climate. Yes, that is his actual title. He flew over to Dubai on what else? He flew over there on a gas-guzzling, carbon-emitting private jet because why wouldn't he do such a thing? 
And he's been leading the U.S. delegation. Kamala Harris also stopped in for God knows what reason. Kamala Harris obviously cannot do anything whatsoever right. She used this appearance in an Arab country to hector Israel and to show tremendous sympathy for the Palestinian cause as she faces terrible domestic polling along with her superior Joe Biden when it comes to the far left of the Democratic base. And if you look at this conference, the president of COP28 is an Emirati official by the name of Sultan Al-Yaber. So who is he? He is both the Emirati equivalent of John Kerry. He is the so-called special envoy for climate change in the UAE. But he wears a rather suspicious dual hat function. He's also the director general and CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. That is the state-owned oil company of the UAE. Yes, you heard that right. The president overseeing the United Nations 28th climate change junket in a country that has top 10 global reserves in both oil and natural gas. The president of this country or the president of this summit is someone who is the CEO of the state owned oil company. And it actually gets even worse than that. Now, to his credit, the president of the summit, Sultan Al-Yaber, actually argued that there is, quote, no science supporting the push to phase out fossil fuels. So he, he, he deserves credit for that. That's actually great. But wh why is the conference being held there? John Kerry, in response to this, said that his remarks require a, quote, clarification. C can you imagine if a Republican, a conservative commentator, Republican running for office or anything, said that there is, quote, no science supporting the net zero rush to phase out fossil fuels and get us to an exclusive green energy energy grid. Could you imagine what the backlash would be? I don't think John Kerry would just ask for a clarification on that. Look, ultimately, when it comes to boondoggles like this, obviously, the elitism, the hypocrisy and the complete lack of self-awareness should rub everyone the wrong way. It is revolting to high heaven here. But you have to understand what these people are ultimately trying to do. They don't give a crap. They could not care less about helping the people they purport to help. Do you know what's the easiest, most efficient way to actually alleviate and hopefully ultimately eradicate poverty in sub-Saharan Africa, the Indian subcontinent, Central America, or other poor regions around the world? The easiest, most efficient way to do so is with cheap, widespread, affordable energy. But again, at this very conference, John Kerry called for the global end of coal plants, as if the Chinese Communist Party, by the way, is ever going to listen to that. What these people are trying to do is not to actually help others. They're not trying to alleviate poverty. They're trying to appease the powers that be at the United Nations, in Brussels, at the European Union, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, things like that. They genuinely do not think the rules apply to them. They genuinely do not think that they are bound by the same strictures that they seek to impose unto others. How else to understand the fact that John Kerry is literally flying to this quote unquote climate change summit in the high Arabian Peninsula desert in a private jet? It's just unbelievable. They think that they are playing by a different set of rules. And in so doing, they are ultimately trying to gang up to impose one world order. This is a story the media has not done a particularly good job of covering. I suspect that that is for a reason. And the reason for that is that I think even the leftists in the mainstream media probably realize just how bad 
the optics of all of this are. That's why it's incumbent on folks like us to shine a spotlight on this. This is just total, absolute crap. Obviously, the United Nations did not, does not actually make or enforce any laws that bind any of us, but their end goal is profoundly, profoundly dangerous. They are trying to erode national sovereignty. They are trying to make people poor. They are ultimately enemies of humanity. They are, they are trying to plunge us into darkness. They would prefer that we not even have children. God forbid we produce more human beings that consume oxygen and spit out carbon dioxide. These are bad people. These are misanthropes, and they are always, always worthy of your revulsion and your intense condemnation. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Detransitioners wield influence in shaping conservative transgender laws. So this is a story that we have covered in Newsweek for the past few years. We've actually published the tales at Newsweek's opinion section of detransitioners, those who were duped into so-called transitioning, into engaging in so-called gender-affirming care surgery, which, what does that amount to? It means chemical castration. It means literally cutting off your genitalia. That is what it means. The mastectomy of healthy teenage girls. We've seen this trend now of so-called detransitioners who come around. They are deeply unhappy. All the empirical social science literature that we see on this indicates that the mid to long term trends of those who engage in these horrific procedures, they are not any happier. If anything, their depression and their suicide rates tragically go up mid to long term. And many of them are increasingly speaking out to which I say good Unfortunately, of course, it took literally cutting off your genitalia or your healthy teenage breasts to get you around to the conservative cause. But, you know, God willing, these conservative detransitioners will be driving Ford F-150s and firing Daniel Defense M4s sooner rather than later. California retailers that refuse to have gender neutral toys for children will be fined up to five hundred dollars. So. This is just wild. So back in 2021, Gavin Newsom signed a law requiring some stores to have a quote unquote gender neutral section for children. Well, if you literally don't follow that, you're fined under 
the gun of the state, 500 bucks. This is just crazy stuff. I mean, what if you are a religious business? You know, the U.S. Supreme Court had a case on this. They had a case called Hobby Lobby back in 2014. It was a landmark case. The fact pattern there involved Obamacare and involved subsidizing health exchanges that, in, that include contraception and abortifacients, things like that. The point, though, and the broader holding of the Hobby Lobby case is that you have a right to be a religious or traditional businessman in the United States of America. We saw that affirmed at the Supreme Court yet again in this term with the 303 creative case out of Colorado. This is a terrible law, obviously totally unsurprising. Gavin Newsom signs a heck of a lot of terrible laws there. God willing, this sort of thing will be repealed sooner rather than later. You do not have to do this sort of thing. If you want to support the fact that boys can be boys and girls can be girls, you are free to do that. This is America, for God's sake. University of Minnesota under fire for implementing anti-racist CRT training in the public health department. So they're offering there at their School of Public Health a so-called anti-racism 101 training. Look, at the end of the day, we know what anti-racism, so to speak, is. We have heard it straight out of Ibram X. Kendi's mouth. They have not been hiding this, whether it's Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, or any number of other of these pseudo-academic total frauds and hacks. In the words of Ibram X. Kendi, to be a good anti-racist, the remedy for past discrimination is current discrimination, and the remedy for current discrimination is future discrimination. We saw that argument played out in the dissenting opinion of Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson in the landmark affirmative action case at the Supreme Court back in June. We saw what that looks like. Go back and compare that to the majority opinion from Chief Justice Roberts and most important, the amazing concurring opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas. You have dual conceptions of the American regime and the notion of constitutional colorblindness. On the one hand, you have the actual authentic conception of the United States of America rooted in the Declaration of Independence from 1776, the Reconstruction Amendments after the war from the 13th through the 15th Amendments and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Martin Luther King. You have the colorblind conception where merit actually guides us. MLK famously said, judge us not by the color of our skin, by the content of our character. On the other hand, you have so-called anti-racism. Pick one. It's a zero-sum game. Fortunately, this is fertile terrain for us on the right. This is an issue that we have been winning on. Keep it coming. In this case, give the, the University of Minnesota School of Public Health crap. Go flood their inbox. Tell them that you object to this. Finally, failing schools embrace anti-racism training. So similar story. This time it's out of California. The Martinez Unified School District there is spending more than $100,000 over the next three years on a program called, quote, Student Leaders Anti-Racist Movement. Again, look, what is the purpose of a system of education? Is the purpose of a system of education to mold and to sculpt a new rising generation of Americans who are ultimately going to love their family, love their country, and dare I say it, actually love God Almighty himself? Well, back in the day, that was the point of education. You want to go back and read the thoughts of the American founders when they were writing about education of really any statesman, you know, Horace Greeley, any of the great folks who wrote about education, that's what they were getting at. Unfortunately, for the past 30 years, you've seen SJWs totally co-opt this and trying to train an army of young mercenaries. The time now is to push back harder than ever on this absolute unmitigated garbage. <laughs> 